0: title of this sermon is the incarnation promises prophecies in the proto evangelium so I'll explain particularly what that last word means here in just a bit as with last week this morning we're gonna be thinking upon the incarnation Jesus becoming flesh Jesus coming to earth taking on full humanity Uh, last week we discuss seven reasons why Jesus had to become fully human in the Incarnation. This week, we're going to look in on the promises, prophecies, and the good news proclaimed in the Incarnation. In other words, Jesus showing up as a human actually wasn't a surprise. Uh, it had been pro- pr- promised and foretold throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. Gary Brashear's helpfully says it this way. He says, because God is sovereign over the future, he alone is capable of giving prophetic insight into the future. In great mercy, he did this for his people in the Old Testament. He detailed for them who was coming to save them, how he would come, where he would come, when he would come, and why he would come. So that they would anticipate the incarnation and salvation of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to take a tour through the Old Testament to look at a couple of passages that do exactly what he just said, that anticipate Jesus' coming. As with last week, it's my hope that the more that we grasp the wonder and the magnitude and the beauty of the Christmas story, the more we'll be drawn to worship and awe at the feet of Christ. So, let's dig in. We're going to start today in the book of Genesis. Particularly, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I know that we did a little bit of this in the book of Esther. But we're going to do it again and think through it in the lens of incarnation. So, in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis... God creates all things, and he creates man and woman in his own image to glorify him and to have relationship with him. As we said last week, he gives mankind a responsibility to subdue and have dominion over all of creation as a a representative of God's good authority over all things. He gave them one rule with a deadly consequence. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, rebelled against the Creator and King of the universe, God responded with wrath towards Satan and patience and grace towards humanity. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God, cover themselves up, but inadequately. So God killed an animal and covered them up. He proclaimed curses on the man, the woman, and Satan, even the earth itself. In Genesis 3.15, he also made a glorious, glorious promise. Theologians call this verse the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel in Scripture. Look with me at Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to Satan here, but we get to kind of listen in on it and hear what he said. Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan... And the woman in between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. First, notice a couple of clues that God gives us here. This offspring or seed will be born of a woman, there's no mention of a father here. While this is going to get spelled out more and more as the scriptural story continues, this implies virgin birth. Second, this seed will be male. So we're looking for a male born of a woman. And what's this seed going to do? He shall bruise your, the serpent's, head, and you, the serpent, shall bruise his heel. Understand this. The serpent, Satan, had placed humanity under the bondage of sin. They were trapped, slaves to it. But at the beginning of the story, here in Genesis 3.15, God promises them a plan of redemption, a promise of rescue. This seed will crush the head of Satan. Satan. Satan will be under his, uh, under his heel, or under his authority. That's the, the story of the whole Bible in a nutshell. That's the good news of the gospel. Notice that this isn't about what mankind will do to, to get themselves out of Satan's grip. This is important. This is about what God will do through his seed. This is a, a proclamation of good news. From the beginning, that's what the gospel is, a proclamation of good news. It's not a plan of how to get yourself right or a list of things for you to do. It's a proclamation of good news. Here, it's God telling humanity what he's going to do. And I want us to notice the the certainty in this proclamation. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This good news is going to happen. It can't be stopped. So, that's the plan, and it's absolutely certain. Now, there are certainly many other places throughout the biblical storyline that we could trace this seed and promises made about him, but I want to key in on just a couple more. In Genesis chapter 12, God shows up to this man named Abram, who Joshua chapter 24 tells us is an idol worshiper. Abram, the idol worshiper. God calls this man to leave his country and to go to a land that he's going to show him. God then promises to make him a great nation and tells him that he's blessing him to be a blessing to other nations. In Genesis chapter 15, this covenant gets reaffirmed, and Abraham is credited with righteousness. Why? Because of his faith in God's word and God's promise. The great reversal of Adam in the garden. Then, in Genesis 22, look what God says. Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring... Shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This word, offspring, is the same word as Genesis 3.15. Seed, offspring. Now, look what Paul does with this passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Galatians 3.16 Paul says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, this promise made to Abraham in Genesis 22 was talking about a singular seed, Christ. That's how the nations will be blessed through Abraham, through Christ. What an amazing promise, and a continuation of the promise made in Genesis 3.15. There's so much more that could be said about that, but let's keep moving. If we fast forward a couple thousand years from Abraham to around 700 B.C., Israel is getting crushed from every side. Their king, Ahaz, refuses to listen to the Lord, and instead is making treaties with Assyria to try to protect himself. So even after God has told Ahaz, their king, not to make a treaty with Assyria, this guy's a wicked king. He's doing it. They're about to be overrun. Things are dark, and it doesn't seem like God's promise from Genesis 3, 12, 15, or 22 is likely. And here's what God says to them in the midst of that. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call you shall call his name Emmanuel. This is another place that grammatical numbers matter. The U here is plural. This isn't just a sign given to Ahaz the sinful king. It's a sign given to the house of David, the people of God. And this sign isn't a promise that. They'll be delivered from their immediate foes. They weren't. It's a sign of something much, much bigger. It's a sign of a more important deliverance and a Davidic king. But you can hear the echoes of promise here. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. This is what we've been waiting for and hoping for since Genesis 3.15. Matthew chapter 1 reveals that Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled. Look at this Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 25. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, meaning Joseph, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, bump forward from Isaiah 7 to Isaiah 9. We're actually going to camp out here for a little bit, so you can go ahead and flip over there in your Bibles. Isaiah chapter 9. As we said with Isaiah 7, the context is that Israel's getting crushed from every angle. And the last verse of Isaiah 8 says this, Isaiah eight twenty-two, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Ouch. Things are pretty bad, right? <coughs> pretty grim outlook. Distress, darkness, gloom of anguish. Thick darkness. Then we get Isaiah 9, chapter 1. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So, in spite of the fact that Israel has rejected God's word through Isaiah, he's planned to give them light again. Matthew chapter 4 sees the fulfillment of this in the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. Then look, starting in verse 2 of Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 5. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. A couple of truths that absolutely can't be missed here. These verbs in Isaiah 9 are in the past tense, even though they're describing things in the future. They're what are known as prophetic perfects. Prophetic perfects. They're spoken of as already happening because of their certainty. Remember, these these words are being spoken during one of the darkest days in Israel. Yet, they're speaking words of hope and victory and light and joy. This would be like singing chipper Christmas carols at a funeral. It doesn't seem to fit. Unless... Unless you trust and believe in the promises of God. There's a hope amidst distress. There's light in the midst of darkness. Now, look at verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ding, 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 ding. For the reader of the Old Testament alarm bells are going off at this point a child is born a son is given isaiah has just told us about light and hope amidst a terrible moment in the history of god's people how can he be so optimistic oh because the promises of god are irrevocable they're solid gold they they never change or shift promise that a son of Eve would crush the head of Satan. You see this. A background of disaster. And a promise of hope. But we should also notice that the answer of hope is shocking. It's surprising. You're Israel. And you're surrounded by nations that are about to crush you. You're you're being led by a wicked king. And the hope is a child. How can that be? This isn't exactly how they thought they'd be rescued. God knew exactly what he was doing. Further, as with Genesis 3.15, I just want to reiterate this again. This this isn't a list of what Israel is supposed to do. It's a proclamation of what this son will do for them. And this child will fulfill the role of a king. It says the government will be on his shoulder. He's a king. Isaiah is telling us that this child will fulfill the promise of a Davidic king being on the throne forever. Second, this was part of the role of Adam in the garden, to have dominion over all that God had made, to rule. Then there's this amazing list of what he's going to be called. Look at the last part of verse 6. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Take these one at a time. Wonderful counselor. This child is going to be supernaturally wise. A number of scholars say that these Hebrew words are about as close as you can get to calling someone supernatural or divine. While the human king Ahaz is trusting in his own wisdom, this child will have divine wisdom. Again, this sounds like Eden where Adam and Eve trusted in their own wisdom, and it led to their demise. Ahaz has been told repetitively not to make an alliance with Assyria. And like Adam and Eve, he does it anyway. Guess who ultimately overthrew Ahaz? Assyria. He thought he was smarter than God. He wasn't. But God will provide a wonderful counselor, who knows all things and rules justly. It's amazing that this child will be a wonderful counselor. Next word, mighty God. If if wonderful counselor is close to calling him divine, this one goes all the way. He doesn't just say they call him like a mighty God. His name shall be called mighty God. And isn't this exactly the God that we need? We're weak. We all, like Adam, have sinned and can't help ourselves. Without a mighty God, we're hopeless. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Now, this can be confusing, um, you might be saying, I-, I thought a son was going to be given. Why, why is he being called father? Well, in the Old Testament, uh, often kings were called fathers. They were spiritual, political fathers to those who were under them. In the Ten Commandments, we're told to honor father and mother. We're also biblically commanded to obey those placed in authority over us. And One way the Old Testament shows this is by calling kings fathers. In other words, this child is being declared to be the ruler of his people. Eternally. Eternal father. His rule and his reign will never end. That's spelled out even more clearly in verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. This wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, will bring stability and peace unlike any that they've ever known. That place called Eden that we've read about but never seen or experienced, will be recreated under the rule of this child. He's also called the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. This child will be the one to bring true and lasting peace to his people. Uh, Again, consider the context here. God's people under a wicked king, being attacked by all of the nations around them. Do you think that they could use some peace? And that peace will come through this child. Micah, the prophet, also picks up on all of this. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, their peace he's the prince of peace the new testament continues to recognize jesus as the fulfillment of this luke chapter 2 jesus is born the angels are are looking on in awe and wonder and look at what they're saying luke chapter 2 verses 13 and 14 And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What about Jesus himself? There we have angels proclaiming it. Jesus himself, on the night when he was betrayed, he's teaching the disciples. And he says this. John 14, verse 27. He says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What about Romans chapter 5, verse 1? Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see what it means for jesus to be the prince of peace not only will he bring an end to wars and strife between humanity he'll bring peace between god and man he'll bring a return to eden Do you see the the vastness and the beauty of who this child is and what he'll do this is the seed promised in genesis three fifteen. this is the offspring promised to Abraham that will bless the nations. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a child worth putting all of your hope in. Each and every day, each of us has a decision to make. Will we put our hope in earthly things, in our own wisdom, our own politics, our own provision? Or will we trust this child? It would be a tragedy to go through this Christmas season and to enjoy the trees, enjoy the lights, enjoy the presents. And miss out on the truth of this child. If you've never put your trust and hope in Jesus. You can today. And we invite you to. He's a wonderful counselor. A mighty God. An everlasting father. And prince of peace. Believe in him. If you have questions about what that looks like. I would love to talk to you after the service. Well, just as with last week, I want us to see the nativity scene this Christmas and be drawn to worship and to awe. Consider why Jesus became man. Consider all of the waiting and the promises and the prophecies that led up to his birth. Consider the good news of his coming. Second and finally, I don't want us to miss that All of this, this whole story, all of it is of grace. Look how our passage ends. Isaiah 9, verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This isn't a list of what the people of God must do to earn all of this. It's, again, a proclamation of what the Lord will do. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, a proclamation that Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect and sinless life, that he went to the cross to die in our place, taking the full and just wrath of God on our behalf. Dying, being buried, and three days later, rising from the grave to defeat sin, Satan, and death for those who repent and trust in him. The zeal of the Lord of hosts did that. And that's where we place our hope and our trust during the Christmas season and always. God has given us an amazing gift at Christmas. The exact gift that each and every one of us needed. And so in light of that, let's pray.